Welcome to What's Working in Washington. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Today, the IDEA Act, how it's improving customer experience for taxpayers. Is this idea that, hey, this is not a point in time exercise, but rather these experiences are gonna to continue to evolve over time. And we wanna design these experiences with the user in mind. We live in an interconnected world. In the private sector, this reality has allowed businesses to get closer to customers and provide better experiences and value for money. Well, shouldn't the same thing apply to the government? Our guest in the studio, Zach Trojak, is principal of public sector at Medallia. He's an expert on helping the government use technology to improve the customer experience of our citizens. We're going to talk about the IDEA Act, a recently adopted federal initiative to require the digitalization of government forms and the potential for making government more responsive to its customers, as in all of us taxpayers. Zach, thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Well, I, anything called the IDEA Act uh, appeals to me, but what is the IDEA Act and why does it matter? Yeah, so the IDEA Act is super exciting. So this was signed into law last December, and it's uh, the Integrated Digital Experience Act. And, and really the main idea of this is, how do we take government websites, which are old and, and outdated and uh, overlapping in many cases, and essentially modernize those, right? This idea of modernization across government is something that is highly prevalent now across all different uh, spans of, of federal agencies. So why shouldn't uh, digital experiences be any different? Uh, and the IDEA Act is super exciting. So what it's trying to do is, is take these government websites and modernize them to act more like private sector websites. So some of that is very technical in nature. So things such as uh, making them 508 compliant, ensuring that they're over secure connections. And those things are great and they're good for stability and, and the like. But more exciting is the things that are going to really ensure that taxpayers and citizens like us are, are getting more benefit and usability out of these websites. So things like taking those in-person experiences or lengthy paper forms and requiring that those those types of examples are brought into the digital world, that we're able to do more of those things uh, online, ensuring that uh, search functionality is more robust. So instead of having to call into a more expensive channel for, for the government, like a contact center, to get answers to common questions, we put those things front and center for folks who are able to access this right off their devices. So things like... Uh maybe using chatbots properly or things like having a, a, a UI that loads into the, you know, your most recent browser and actually works properly, stuff like that? Yeah, think about, for example, uh, um, at the Social Security Administration, right? Mm -hmm. a, a very common use case here is the idea that you need a new Social Security card, right? Most folks are going to go stand in line at, at your local Social Security office and go through what is admittedly a pretty painful process to do so. Uh, that process for actually getting a new Social Security card can be done online today, but one, it's perhaps a bit too hard to discover for folks, and two, perhaps a bit kind of uh, difficult to navigate that process and figure out exactly what are the steps that I need to take to walk through that. But for, for both the customer, that's a great experience if they don't have to go to that office to actually complete that task. And for Social Security in this case, that's a great under, it, it's a great outcome if I can stop someone from having to come into the, the, the center where it's a much more expensive to serve them uh, and then perhaps have to call into the contact center for follow-up. Digital transactions are far less expensive for the agency to, to, to manage. So in a world where they're always being asked to kind of do more with less, this really plays well into that. So speaking from my own personal experience, invested in starting consumer internet and enterprise internet businesses, it sounds to me like what you're really talking about here more than anything else is giving the the customer, the taxpayer, the same level of interactions with the feds. I think it's really absolutely yeah, that's terrific. Spot on. Okay, so how do you think the government should take advantage of these opportunities? To, uh, I mean, once you start to engage in customer experiences, one of the great things about the private sector is you gather data 
you gather behavior, you can draw inferences. Is that what the government will be doing or should be doing? Yeah, absolutely. I think another great part of the IDEA Act that they speak to is this idea that, hey, this is not a point in time exercise, but rather these experiences are going to continue to evolve over time. And we want to design these experiences with the user in mind, right? They shouldn't be built uh, in a way that is just using taxonomy or, or, or using layouts that are comfortable for a federal agency, uh, kind of behind the behind the glass there, but rather something that makes sense to the customer, right? It makes sense to the, to the taxpayer, to the citizen, to the applicant. And like, and the, the citizen expectations are rising because of what's happening in, in the private sector, right? Everyone who engages with Amazon and Apple and so on and so forth, they, they come to IRS or Social Security or so on and so forth expecting that same experience. We need to ensure that we're delivering that for them. Otherwise, it's going to be an incredibly expensive proposition to manage. You know, I'm going to – I think about a country like Estonia, what they're doing around you know digital credentials and how they're really going towards a, a digital economy where you don't have to keep reentering the same information time and again. Is that the kind of vision you see for for where we should be going here? Yeah, I think uh, in, in many cases, kind of uh, some foreign governments and even state and local governments are, are a bit ahead of kind of where we're at from the compared to the U.S. federal uh, point of view. There's reasons for that, right? That's not to necessarily take a pot shot at us, but it's absolutely kind of the direction that we should be be heading towards, right? How can we do more? Right, the, the, the world is going digital. Um, so how do we make sure that we are keeping pace with that, but in, in ways that are certainly secure um, and and understanding that there are certainly going to be interactions and experiences that are never quite going to be able to be digitized, and that's okay. But let's take that low-hanging fruit, or in many cases, that that rotting fruit on the forest floor, if it were, as it were, mm. uh, and really pick that up and enable us to be better uh, stewards of that information through digital means. Before I let you go, since you're in the trenches, give me some specific examples of how Medallia and you are, are actually helping the government do these customer experiences now. So at Medallia, we really focus on collecting customer feedback and, and utilizing that feedback to really enable, in this case, federal agencies to take action based upon what customers are sharing about their experiences, right? transforming it past data points uh, and into action, right? This shouldn't, shouldn't simply be uh, scorecards that we're collecting or, or metrics that are simply passed up to Congress, but how do we take that feedback that we collect from customers and actually enable organizations to do something with it? So, for example, we work closely with the Department of Veterans Affairs, uh, and we're collecting feedback literally from millions of vets on an annual basis, asking them about the experiences that they're having, both with the department writ large, but also with, with very specific interactions, whether that's going to a pharmacy, uh, an outpatient visit, and asking them, how did that go? Uh, and not then just taking that information, putting it in a report somewhere, but rather saying, if someone had a problem with a visit when they had gone to their to the pharmacy, what can we learn from that? How can we get that information back out to that individual front line so that they can improve that one-to-one? -one? But also, what can we learn about that from behind the scenes in a, in a more aggregate level, right? Hey, is this something that's happened once or something that's happening time and time again that we can solve uh, really at that baseline level to have those types of major improvements across the, the agency? I love that example, and I look forward to hearing more in the future. This is a really important trend, and I'm glad you took the time to share it with us today. Zach Charjak, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And now, non-billable consult with legal expert Andrew Sherman. It seems as though our workplaces, workspaces, and the homes of our startups are shifting rapidly. Gone are the days of the garage birth startups, Companies run from our kitchen tables or reporting to big corner offices in large ivory towers. It's much more likely that today's worker will report to a satellite office, an office designed around hoteling or co-working, or work virtually or be linked in some way through technology. Some more advanced facilities are even offering co-living and co-working in parallel 
like the Eagles Hotel California. You will never leave. And today's startups are more likely to be birthed by co-working facilities, whether it's WeWork or their many general or specialized competitors or accelerators or incubators or nests or hives or the hundred other names that I've heard these facilities be called to host and foster early stage companies and sharing space. If you're considering setting up shop or just working either for your employer or as a gig in these facilities, there are a few key legal questions that you need to consider. First, what's the base rent? How is it calculated? By use, by day, by week, by month? What's included and what services do you pay for separately? What value-added programs or services are offered by the facility? Do they expect equity ownership in your company? Is it straight common stock? Is it options? Is it warrants? Is it some type of rights of first refusal? Is there any IP protection or covenant not to compete or any type of category exclusivity when it comes to collaboration with other tenants within the facility? Before you dive headfirst into the new age of work and workplace, be sure to know all of the legal questions and issues that these facilities present. Some are still very new and unfolding quickly as these venues are opening up shop. That was your non-billable consult with legal expert Andrew Sherman. Thank you to the Greater Washington Board of Trade. The Greater Washington Board of Trade represents leading businesses, nonprofit organizations, and academic institutions and has helped shape the development of our region for over 130 years. Visit boardoftrade.org to learn how a Board of Trade membership can help your organization succeed in this rapidly changing marketplace. Thanks to Auric, an international law firm that focuses on technology, energy, and infrastructure finance. Clients worldwide call on it for forward-looking commercial advice on transactions, litigation, and compliance. Learn more at auric.com. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan, online writer Barbara Ulrich, music provided by two D.C. region bands, Two Car Living Room, and The Sunbathers. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for listening. See you next time.